Okay, well, let's, let's pray. Well, Father, as always, we thank you for bringing us together safely. Lord, we, uh, we're glad to be here, Lord. There's no better place to be than with the brethren and at church where we can hear your word, where we can hear God and we can sing to you and just have our minds renewed that we would think rightly, Lord, during the week we get off, Lord, we, we don't think rightly and we pray that you will just um, renew our spirits, Lord, renew our, our, our thinking and our minds towards you and away from the world, Lord, just give us this grace to, um, to receive your word today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, as always, if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, we're going to continue today through this book. Today we are in Acts chapter 8. I'm entitling this lesson here, The Acts of Philip. The Acts of Philip, and I do want to try to cover the entire chapter today as we were able to do last time. Last time we covered the entire chapter 7, as you recall, with Stephen in his sermon. And it does seem like the book of Acts, just being that it's kind of in a narrative form, that it seems to flow pretty well to cover these big chunks of text, you know, and I think we'll be able to do the same thing today. And I think it kind of goes good with Romans. We do some high-level stuff in Acts, and then we do a deep dive into Romans afterwards. So this will just be our warm-up our warm-up study. Um, So Acts chapter 8, before getting to the Acts of Philip and and all the evangelism that he's going to do in Samaria and that he's going to do with the Ethiopian eunuch, we have a couple verses here at the very beginning concerning the future apostle Saul of Tarsus. Um, If I could go back, I I should have tacked these on to to the end of last time. I didn't think we were actually going to finish the whole chapter, so I didn't, I didn't even really deal with these verses. But it would have been good to, uh, to deal with these last time. It kind of went along with Stephen's murder. Um, but let's look at these before we move on real quickly. The ESV gives a little uh, subtitle here to the verse 1. It says, Saul ravages the church, which is a very a very good title here. And so we're picking up in verse one. We're coming right out of the stoning of Stephen at the end of chapter seven, as you recall. And the first verse says, and Saul approved of his execution. And I already stopped right there and thought, it's kind of interesting how, if you think about the fact that Luke is a companion of the future apostle Paul, Um, They traveled together. They did missionary work together. If you remember, we kind of looked. I don't remember why we referenced this already, but maybe in the introduction to the the book. But you have the we section of Acts where Luke starts using we went here, we went there. So we know that Luke was with the Apostle Paul in many of his journeys. And I think that's interesting as you think of all the things that Luke says about Paul or Saul of Tarsus and just how he doesn't. Um, shy away from mentioning just the the evil, the great evil that was the Apostle Paul, despite this close relationship. He doesn't shrink back from being uh, very honest about Paul's wicked life and his pre-conversion. 
um, he makes sure to include the fact here that Saul was at the stoning of Stephen, that he wasn't just there, but he was basically kind of overseeing the murder of Stephen. People were laying down their cloaks as, as he watched over their jackets and just kind of affirmed everything that was going on with, with the murder of Stephen. And so to reiterate Saul's part in, in this murder, Luke includes here the fact that Saul is approving of this execution. And Saul wasn't just passively like standing by watching. Drop down to verse 3. It says, but Saul was ravaging the church and he was entering house after house and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So our beloved Apostle Paul at one time was a full-fledged terrorist, literally terrorizing the bride of Christ. It says that he was going into houses, taking out both men and women. You can only assume that he's probably leaving some children there may be parentless and just dragging the parents off to prison, hoping that they would be dealt with in the most severely severe ways. Um, and this is how the Apostle Paul earns the title, the chief of sinners. Paul, the chief of sinners. Now, we, we can ask the question, and, and Paul, I, I think, believes that people would ask the question, why would God save the chief of sinners. Well, I always thought this was interesting that the Bible tells us why Paul in particular was chosen by God to be saved. You know, we always kind of wonder, I wonder why God chose me. Like, why did God save me and not my brother who's not believing? And we grew up in the same house, same influences, same friends. I mean, everything. Why am I believing and he's not? What's well, kind of interesting that the Bible tells us Paul knows why he got saved. I'll read it to you. First Timothy 1.15. Paul himself says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So, Paul was saved in God's sovereign plan to be an example. Paul was saved to be an example to sinners and really, to God, God saved Saul to take, to, to take any excuse away from anybody who wants to say, I can't be saved because I'm too sinful. That's why this murderer, this terrorist was saved, was so that no one on Judgment Day will be able to come to God and say, I was too wicked, that's why I didn't come to Christ, I was too bad. Um, the murderer of the bride of Christ was saved, and so, therefore... God himself is taking this, this excuse away from anyone, which is good news for us who are sinners. Uh, we haven't, at least we haven't murdered Christians, right? We haven't gone that far. If God saves Christian murderers, he can save us. So that's good news for us. That's encouraging. Now, quickly back to the second half of verse one, because I skipped it. Something else is going on here. That's Saul. We're, we're all very interested in, in the Apostle Paul and his, 
his pre-conversion. But it said here that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now, I almost named this lesson, look at what one sermon can do, right? uh, Stephen preached this sermon, and as a result, there's just a a list of dominoes that fell as the result of of this one sermon. I think that sermon in that day in particular is a, a, what could we say, like an underappreciated day in church history, So Stephen preaches this one sermon. He lays out for the Jewish nation all the ways in which they've 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 misapplied and misused the old covenant and the law and everything that it was intended to do and that it was supposed to be pointing them to Christ. Christ comes and they they missed all the foreshadowing that was there. Uh, This this final nail in the coffin, you could say of judgment against the, the, the Jewish people, and, and, and that's given to the Jewish people through this sermon to the leadership. Uh, but on that day, you also have the ascended, the, the risen and ascended Christ, who's already seated on his throne in his heavenly session, as the theologians call it, where Christ is seated and reigning. He's in his heavenly session, but the Christ stands Uh, The Son of God stands on this day to affirm and to acknowledge the faithfulness of of this this Christian uh, Stephen. And so the Christ stands on this day. Um, So not only were the Jews finally declared guilty of covenant unfaithfulness, not only did the seated Christ arise on this day, but it says that the great persecution of the church began this day. The great persecution, the, the, the Sanhedrin had just recently crucified the leader of this movement. They, and now they're kind of opening the floodgates to destroy his followers. And, and Saul is there. Saul's ready to join in the festivities and all of that. But as with, with everything in God's wise providence, this persecution, this scattering of the church is really simply beginning uh, the fulfillment of Jesus's command in his call that the that the church would take the gospel to all the nations. This is is fulfilling originally this call that was given to Israel in the first place to bring all of the nations in. And if you look in verse four here, look what happens as the church is scattered. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were preaching the word. So these Christians didn't run and hide. The Christians ran and preached. That's interesting, right? You would think if you're running, you're scared, you're going to hide. But these Christians are preaching. And I, and, I, and I reference, this is what Israel was called to do. Isaiah 49, 6, they said, it said that I will make you, speaking to Israel, a light for the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And so, as with many things, what Israel failed to do, Christ through his church is accomplishing. 
of course, with a little helpful prodding of persecution, they're scattering, they're preaching, they're taking the gospel to the whole world. And somehow it seems strange to kind of imagine how this plays out or how this worked, but the apostles, everybody scatters and runs, but somehow the apostles stay behind. That's, that's kind of interesting to think. How did that work out? How did that think out? With, the, with this great persecution, how were they able to remain? I don't know if they were hiding. Um, I don't know how they were able to, to all live. Some will, James will, you know, die and um, they don't all avoid the trouble. So the church is being scattered. The church is being dispersed. Now Luke is going to hone in on this one man, Philip. Philip, another of the deacons chosen from Acts chapter 6. We've seen the Acts of Stephen, now the Acts of Philip. Acts chapter 8, verse 5 is where we're at. It says in verse 5 that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. How does Luke summarize the preaching of Philip here? It says that he was proclaiming the Christ. Just like the apostle to come, Paul says that we proclaim him. And I thought, you know, just to mix in a little application here, I thought maybe this would be a good test for your evangelism. Um, as As you're speaking to people, trying to share the good news with them, trying to share the gospel with them, just think, how would you summarize your evangelistic encounter? Um, are you proclaiming the Christ? Because I know for myself personally, we can get bogged down in a lot of good discussion, a lot of true discussion concerning you know, the fallenness of man, the sinfulness of man, the bankruptcy of an unbelieving worldview, uh, the, the pointing out the foundationless, philosophy of the unbeliever, these kinds of things that are all right and true and good, we can, get, we can talk much about, are we proclaiming the fallenness of man or are we proclaiming the Christ? And so maybe that's something to think about, you know, on, as you're driving home and you're replaying all your discussions, you know, that you have with folks, um, how could I have transitioned from all that discussion concerning man's sin and, and, and the fallenness of their, of their thinking uh, but the transition is, is, is an easy one. The, the answer, the remedy for, for their sin, the remedy for their lack of foundation in, in truth is Jesus Christ. And so it should be a very easy transition. I think, you know, sometimes with the frustration of just dealing with unbelievers in general, they just don't see almost any of the truth they're trying to point out to them. It gets frustrating. You try to reiterate and make points over and over and over trying to, 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 to wake them up. But... What wakes them up is the preaching of Christ, not us necessarily telling them how fallen they are. Um, So we have to make sure we get there, because the good news is what brings a soul to life, not the preaching of the bad news. So I just thought that was interesting how Luke describes uh, the preaching of Philip. He proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, where was Philip proclaiming? It said he's in Samaria. What is Samaria? Samaria, uh, derogatorily, you could say, are the Jewish half-breeds. 
in Samaria lived these Jews who had been taken away in the Assyrian captivity of northern Israel. In what year did that happen? Does anybody remember John Deese's teaching here where he drilled home for us the, the dates of the captivities? That's a tough one, huh? Um, remember, Kinsey, when John Deese came down for the wedding and I was talking to him about that sermon? I said, I've never, that's, I've never had that teaching before. But 722 was when the, the, this captivity happened of northern Israel. And what the Assyrians did was they mixed, uh, they, they married, intermixed the, the races, you could say, the Assyrians and, and the Israelites. And now you have this half-breed, they're calling it, um, this people group who the Jews really kept at a distance and didn't want to accept. You know, they worshipped on their mountain and not in Jerusalem and all of that. Um, but this is where Philip is now proclaiming the Christ. Um, and so we see Jesus' command to be carried out here, that command he gave from Acts 1.8. He told the disciples that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And I just kind of thought of something. Um, you know, you hear the discussion about the Great Commission, right? Who was the Great Commission given to? Was it just given to the apostles? Well, this, this commission here was given to the apostles, right? But who's carrying it out? The deacons, interestingly enough, right? The deacon is... So I think the command was given to the church, and the church has individuals, giftings, and roles to carry out that, that proclamation. But here we see one of the deacons preaching in Samaria. Okay, verse 6. Acts chapter 8, verse 6, in this section we see the reception of the preaching of the Christ. Acts chapter 8, verse 6 says, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, quick stop. Again, as was pointed out last time with Stephen, Stephen was doing miracles. The deacon was doing miracles. Here again, we have Philip also performing the miraculous and Luke explicitly mentions some of these miracles, one of which I'm going to point out now is kind of what I think is, is one of the scariest miracles that you could witness. One of the most frightening miracles. It says that Philip was casting out unclean spirits. And I say that's scary because have you ever stopped to consider like what this would have looked like to be there and see uh, demons being cast out of people? Uh, or, or, or what it heard like? Because it says here, um, try to imagine, what is the sound made by demons being cast out of someone? It says that they cried out with a loud voice. That's not the people. That's referring to the demons, I believe, as they're cast out. They're crying out with a... To me, that's, a, that, that's probably a hideously terrifying reality to, to hear demons screaming out in torture, really. They don't want to leave. They're being cast out and they're screaming um, but what's funny, I guess it's not funny, right? I'm saying this is terrifying. What's funny is that Luke doesn't, doesn't mention terror uh, in the hearts of the people. 
but joy. He says that there's great joy at the, at the reality and, and of the preaching and of the, of the casting out of demons. The people are overjoyed by this reality. Um, and I had another kind of random thought as I thought about this part, is that the Bible doesn't very often speak of joy or laughter coming from like people being silly or telling jokes, right? We don't see joy and laughter happening as a result of that. We see joy and laughter uh, at the receiving of the grace of God, right? That's where you see real biblical joy and, and happiness is at in, in many different ways, but at the receiving of God's grace is what brings laughter and joy into the hearts of, of Christians. Not silly jokes, right? I'm pretty sure Peter told silly jokes and I'm sure they laughed. But that the Bible doesn't take time to speak of that kind of joy. It's speaking of the joy that we get when we have the grace of God in, in any of the ways that we get the grace of God. So I thought that was interesting. I mean, we watch... Um, Little House on the Prairie, right? The kids love Little House on the Prairie. And although it's a secular show, they get some things right. Because I've noticed that, you know, you got Paul, right? He's like the quintessential dad, you know, father figure who's very faithful to the family, works hard, loves his wife, all, does all these things really well. And I always notice that he's not like telling jokes and like making people laugh. And like when I see him laugh, he laughs like when... When, every, when everything's okay, when his family's okay, when, you know, the family's set up or something good happens for the farm or things like that. Like, that brings him joy, not like silliness. It's just different, right? I mean, you, you watch sitcoms now, they just laugh at the silly jokes they tell, right? But the family can be a disaster, but they're still laughing. I just think that's, I think they got that right, in other words. Um, but it, that's kind of, kind of interesting. Um, so let's move on here to verse 9. And Simon, Simon the magician as he's called. Verse 9 says, There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. And he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. He said this about himself. Verse 10, They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So Philip's preaching in Samaria and in Samaria is this man, Simon, Simon the magician. And the, and the commentators kind of debate, they kind of go back and forth on whether, uh, how would we say it, like Simon's an actual magi- magician, like doing... Uh, what, we, what we would say is like demonically empowered uh, magic, you know, like the kind of magic. Casey um, mentioned the book of Exodus, right? So you had the magician, the, the Pharaoh's magicians able to throw down staffs and turn them into snakes. Like how in the world? That's real magic, real demonically empowered magic. Um, or was, was Simon just like knew some sleight of hand tricks and people were like, wow, how'd you, you know, pull that mina out of my ear or something like that? Um, my assumption is, right, because it's talking about the demonic, it's talking about demons being active and being cast out. My assumption is uh, this is legitimate, legitimate, demonically empowered magic that this guy is able to do. It says people were amazed for a long time. Um, this wasn't, wasn't just a little trick here or there. 
Now, you have a big, uh, uh, in verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. I heard one brother mention, just on a side note, that, that how, another aspect of why the new covenant's better than the old covenant is that both men and women get to take the covenant sign. Everyone's baptized, men and women, you know, circumcision, old covenant sign, just the men. But now the women get to partake in the covenant sign. It says they were both baptized. It says, verse 13, even Simon himself believed. Simon the magician. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He was amazed. So even the power of God that is called great, he was amazed at the things that Philip was able to do. And it says he even believed enough to be baptized. And not just enough to be baptized, but he actually followed Philip. He became a disciple of Philip. Now, everybody knew this guy. Everybody knew Simon the Magician. And everyone rejoices when a celebrity is converted, don't they? It's a big deal. Um, and we'll come back to Simon here in just a second. But, but needless to say, Simon the Magician is going to pull a Kanye on Philip here. Get everybody's hopes up. Um, so, so let's kind of pan out for a moment. The bigger picture is in verse 14. The bigger picture is, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, what is so significant about a Samaritan or, or the Samaritans in general receiving the Word of God, believing the Word of God, being baptized? Um, what's the significance of that that would necessitate the apostles themselves leaving Jerusalem, Peter, and John, it says, and they're going to make that trip, that 30-mile trip into Samaritan territory to, to see all this. Well, I kind of mentioned it before. Um, for the Samaritans, if you remember who the Samaritans are, they, they were like those half-breeds that weren't really, they were kept at an arm's length by the, by the Jews. For them to believe the gospel, for them to be uh, accepting the Christ is a huge deal for the Jews. This would have been a huge Deal. You remember the discussion with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, right? And then this whole debate about where are we supposed to worship, who's right? Um, there was a dividing line between Samaritan worship and, and the Jewish understanding of where worship was to take place. And so the Samaritans are believing the gospel and the apostles are sent to, to confirm this, to confirm it and to affirm it. To see if the Samaritans are indeed worshiping in spirit and in truth. Now, a lot of people have the question here about this delayed uh, reception of the Spirit of God following on these believers. I mean, they've believed it said, they've been baptized, but they didn't. It says that the, the Spirit of God had not fallen on them. So, so why this delay? 
Why the delay of the Spirit falling on the Samaritan believers? Well, I say first and foremost, I always kind of establish the fact that I don't believe that this means that the Spirit was in no way present prior to this outward manifestation. Um, I believe the Bible teaches that it's because of the Spirit of God that you do believe in the first place. So if the Samaritans are believing, they're believing because the Spirit of God was active and bringing conviction and bringing spiritual life so that they could believe. So just reiterating the, the reality of, of the Spirit being at work at conversion, um, I just referenced Ephesians 1.13 where it says there, In Him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you believe the God, you, uh, you believe the gospel, you have the Spirit of God. So why the delay then? Well, as we're going to see once we get to Acts chapter 10, we'll be there sooner than later. But once we get to chapter 10, you kind of see the fruition of Jesus' command. Um, being brought to fulfillment. You remember Jesus said the gospel is going to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we see at every point as that is being fulfilled, you see the Spirit being poured out in, in confirmation and affirmation that the Spirit is in fact really present and that the, these converts in these other areas really are happening. Uh, if you think back to Acts chapter 2, where you have this outward manifestation in the first place. Uh, the, the gospel is being preached in Jerusalem, and the Spirit falls, right? And you have the speaking of tongues. Here in Acts chapter 8, as the Spirit goes to Samaria, you have what, I, what I'm assuming is uh, the tongues is, is taking place here, although it doesn't say, but somehow Simon the magician, he sees something happen when the apostles lay their hands on these guys, and he says, oh, I want that miraculous ability. I'm assuming uh, it's tongues happening here as well. And then once the gospel goes to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, this uh, Gentile uh, soldier, then the spirit falls again and you see the tongues occur again. In all of these situations, the apostles, they're all there uh, confirming and affirming that the spirit is in fact working in these people groups. And so that's why, that's why I think the apostles are sent um, to affirm that the Spirit of God is present in these believers, even in these Samaritan believers. So we are in Acts chapter 8. Um, we're going back to verse 18 now. Acts chapter 8, verse 18. We're going back to Simon. Verse 18 says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, which is why I was saying he saw something. I'm presuming it's, it's tongues. It says, Simon offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, 
Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So I read a big chunk there, but to kind of summarize, Simon the magician becomes Simon the false convert very quickly. Um, Simon is still chasing after signs. He still doesn't understand that it's grace through faith, not grace through money. And Peter here has the strongest of rebukes. I mean, this is a lengthy rebuke here. It was multiple verses. He has the strongest of rebukes for this kind of error. And I just said, let that be a lesson for us and for any who were following the, 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 the prosperity kind of preaching and, and this emphasis upon money and the emphasis upon what money, uh, what, what kind of graces from God you can obtain with money. Now, I don't know uh, who caught this or not, but did anybody notice here this, this kind of terrifying hat tip to the sovereignty of God's grace and Peter's rebuke? Um, it's seen there in verse 22. Peter said, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Why would he say, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you? Um, it's almost like Peter kind of evidently either believes that Simon has blasphemed the Spirit, right? You remember the, where the Bible says that there's one unforgivable sin, it's blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. But something is causing the Apostle Peter here to kind of hesitate in this offering up of, of Simon even having a sacrifice for his sins. Has, has he committed the unforgivable sin? Um, it doesn't really say. It's just interesting that Peter words it in, su- in such a way. But it's, it's a terrifying place to be where an apostle of Jesus Christ even hesitates at offering you a full forgiveness of sins. Um, I just put in big brackets here, the lesson being don't play with apostasy. Don't play with apostasy. I know Kinsey's going to get to Hebrews chapter 6, but Hebrews chapter 6 has some of the most terrifying verses in all of the Bible. Um, I typed them out here. I'll just read it to you. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, it says there, For it is impossible, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then who have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they have crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm and have held him up to contempt. That's a real situation, obviously, for some people. Who do we know who has... How do we know if somebody has gone so far as to commit that? I I don't know. But the point is, don't play with apostasy. Don't even get close. And and I just thought how, I think this warning is uh, especially applicable to people who have spent time in churches like ours where there is so much truth, where there is so much enlightening going on, where where there's so much tasting of the Word of God, right? We have so much... 
If you turn away from the gospel at this point, you're turning away from everything that there is to be offered to you. Right? You can kind of understand in a lot of churches where the teaching is not um, accurate, it's just inconsistent, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's just not held together well, and you can have misunderstandings as a result. Um, but in kind of our stream of, of uh, doctrine, uh, we've systematized a lot. I mean, we have the faith well put together and well understood, and, and, and once you've been given that and you reject that, uh, what else could this be referring to, right? Than people who have had the faith given to them and they reject that. You're crucifying Christ again at that point. So I just thought, who, who, who would this apply to any more than to people like us who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God as we have? But, but that's a terrifying place to be. But maybe let's end on a high note versus... Verses talking about those who can't be brought back to repentance. Uh, verse 26. Verse 26. Let's move on in the Acts of Philip. Everybody loves this section of Scripture with the Ethiopian eunuch. I say everybody loves it. Some Presbyterians and people who baptize their babies don't love this section, but, but us Baptists love it. Uh, verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, this is an interesting scene. First of all, we have an angel who gives this direct uh, game plan, this direct order to Philip on on where his next evangelism encounter is going to take place. And Philip responds immediately. The angel says, go. He arises and goes. No questions asked. That's a good that's a good example for us. But who is Philip directed to? It says he's directed to this Ethiopian who's a eunuch. A eunuch. And for those who don't know, eunuchs were those who were were emasculated, who were castrated to to sort of be a better fit for servitude. The idea kind of being that you have this humbled physical state that's going to lead to a more humbled kind of personality, demeanor. It's going to lack all the stumbling blocks of sexual desire. Uh, you'll probably be less prone to aggression, things, things like this. But despite the physical reality being present in this man, he's actually extru- uh, uh, attained and achieved a very high ranking in the Ethiopian court. It says he was in charge of all of the queen's treasury, of Candace's treasury. Now, I just put this note here because I learned something, and I think I heard it again, but I forgot it. I always think Candace is the queen's name. Candace is actually the title, like, like queen. Candace is the, the, so they were all Candace, all the queens of Ethiopia. It's not her name. It's not a proper noun. It's, it's a title. But this man was highly trusted for sure because he was given uh, watch over all her money. He's given freedom here to travel to Jerusalem. He has this chariot, surely to be this luxurious chariot. Tra- uh, 
chariot to travel to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. He's a, he's a, he's a God-fearer. He's a Gentile believer in Yahweh. He has all this great wealth at his disposal. Um, he's actually apparently able to purchase, probably as he gets to Jerusalem, a scroll of Isaiah. And I know this comes up from time to time, but I'm just saying that's extraordinarily. Um, this guy must have been wealthy to have the word, to be able to, I mean, have you ever seen the Isaiah scroll that was found in the Dead Sea uh, scrolls? I mean, to, to have somebody hand write out something like that for you and you able to purchase that, that would have been very, very costly. But this man apparently has uh, a scroll of the prophet Isaiah for his personal study. And it says he's, he's reading it as he goes. Verse 29 so first the angel spoke to Philip and said, go. Now, verse 29 says, the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? So the, the eunuch isn't only physically humble, Apparently, this is a very spiritually humble man. He very quickly um, uh, looks for help in understanding the Word of God. How, how can I understand this unless somebody helps me, unless somebody teaches me? And Philip is, is ready to do that. So it says he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you does the prophet say these things? About himself or about someone else? That's a good question. That's actually a difficult question when you're reading through the, the servant section in Isaiah. Is it talking about Israel? Is it talking about the servant? Or who is this servant that it's speaking of? That's a good question. It says Philip's answer in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, what, what chapter of Isaiah was the, the Ethiopian eunuch reading there? Isaiah 53, which if you're an evangelist and you're getting sent to evangelize somebody, what, what a better text, right? What, a, what an easier, this could be a lot harder text that this guy could have been reading, um, but the Spirit graciously has him providentially reading Isaiah 53 uh, that is explicitly talking about the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ 700 years before Jesus was even uh, come into the world. Isaiah 53, that famous text, he was pierced for our transgressions, all of, all of that. Um, Isaiah 53, I'll never forget, we, we used to do some evangelism in South Lake, Texas, kind of outside uh, Frisco, and I never forget, a, a former pastor's wife, she would have Isaiah 53 open, and she would just go up and read this to people and say, who's this talking about? And without fail, I mean, Muslim, Christian, atheist, everybody Oh, that's talking about, obviously that's talking about Jesus. Like we know Christians, like it's, your Bible talks about Jesus and, and she would be able to show them, well, this is from Isaiah. This is from the, the prophet 700 years before Christ even came. And you clearly recognize that 
I'm reading to you about Jesus Christ. It was actually pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, it was, it was literally without fail that people recognized Jesus Christ in the reading of Isaiah 53. Whether they even knew much about the Bible or not, it was pretty incredible. I'll never forget that. Um, so what's next? As I said, the Presbyterians most hated Bible verse. Verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And that's the big deal, right? Because they come to some water. In other words, it was enough water, as we'll see, for like full baptism immersion. Because right? I'm sure that he's going on a long trip here. I'm sure the eunuch had some wineskins full of water to sprinkle if sprinkling was the way that baptism was done. But he sees water. It says, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, what is so beautiful, what is so right about this scene is the eunuch has the gospel preached to him. Jesus is clearly laid out for him from the scriptures. Without hesitation, he believes. And he believes to the point that he wants to join the covenant community of Christians and he wants to be baptized. He wants to receive the sign of baptism. And this is good fruit. This is good fruit. If, if you've really believed in Jesus, you should have the same desire as the eunuch uh, to follow really what is the very first command of Jesus. Jesus says in Mark 1.15, the first words in his ministry is repent and be baptized. Um, it just doesn't seem right to say that you believe in Jesus, that you follow Jesus, and the very first command he gave, you haven't even followed yet. Um, so baptism, baptism is just the, the beautiful picture of what is, uh, has happened inside of you. It's the outward picture of that internal reality that, that you should be desiring if you believe in Christ. Christ said to do it, you should want to do it, and it's just such a beautiful picture of what has happened to you. And so follow the Ethiopian's example. He believes. I remember when I, when I got converted, and I had been baptized a thousand times already, thinking I had been saved. But when I got saved for real, um, I remember trying to get baptized, you know, and, you know, the practicality of getting on the schedule with the pastor, you know, oh, we'll put you on the, for a month, you know, from now. And I'm like, no, that's not going to work. I'm calling my, I'm in Fort Worth. I'm calling my dad like, hey, you need to get up here and baptize my dad. No, you know, you need to the church, you know, let the pastor, you know, and I'm calling Cassie's uncle. Will you, I'm trying to get baptized, right? Like I felt like the eunuch, like I want to follow. I want to do what Christ said. I want to be baptized. Um, and so, so I think that is, it's a beautiful example that the, that the eunuch um, is, is portraying for us here. Now, more good fruit from the eunuch, verse 39. It says, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Now, I say more good fruit from the eunuch because the only Christian he knows at this point, his teacher is taken away from him at his conversion, and he's left alone, but he's still on the way rejoicing. He has the Lord Jesus he has everything in, in that sense that you need, because if you have union with Christ, uh, you can have joy in the worst of situations. You can be abandoned to the you know, worst part of the earth. And if you have Christ, you can go on your way rejoicing as this man was able to do. 
It says here that Philip, this faithful deacon, continues his ministry. Verse 40. Now Philip found himself at Azotus. Azotus. I didn't know where this is. You know, you just kind of read over some of these cities. This is interesting that this is uh, like ancient Ashdod. This is the, the capital of the Philistines where he's preaching the gospel now. Jews preaching the gospel in the capital of, of Philistia. And as he passed through, it says he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So, going back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as Jesus commanded, the gospel is finally going out into all the world as Jesus had intended. And we should be very thankful that, that it did because the gospel found its way all the way to the other side of the planet and we were able to hear it and we were able to believe it and we were able to be baptized and we were able to follow the Lord Jesus just as, as these folks were able to and we were able to be saved because the gospel went out as a result of the persecution that started with the stoning of Stephen. That's why I was going to name the, the Sunday school. Look what one sermon did. One sermon took the gospel to all of the world. So praise the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, Father, we're not thankful as we should be, but Lord, we just praise your name right now for saving us. We thank you, God, for bringing the gospel to us. We thank you that in your good grace, Lord, you've chosen Lord, maybe you'll tell us why us in particular you chose to save, Lord, in heaven. Lord, we, um, we look forward to, to looking into these mysteries and all of these things that we ponder for now, Lord. But we, we wait for that answer for now. We're just thankful for your grace, Lord. We pray that as we continue to study your word, Lord, that today we would just be more and more um, settled in the faith, that we would be settled on even the hard teachings of your word, Lord, that, that you would be true and every man a liar, Lord, and that would be the foundation for every thought we have. Lord, we pray you'll give us this grace. In Jesus' name, amen.